we, you're going through this series, right? And there's all these powerful, powerful statements about the reality of who God is, what he's done, what he's about, what the scriptures tell us about the nature and purpose and reality and glory of Jesus Christ. And then there's this word at the end, right? Amen. And it can seem so anticlimactic, like so, okay, it's just one word. Like what, what does this do with the rest of all that we've heard, the, the, the reality that there's an empty tomb, the reality that God has made all things with his voice, the reality that the resurrection really happened. And then, and then I'm invited to talk about a word, amen. But here's something that we need to consider this morning together. Powerful change often starts incredibly small. Powerful change often starts incredibly small. Things that we sometimes think are insignificant in the beginning grow into something that changed the world. We've seen this happen in the history of our world as we've watched things unfold before our eyes. Rosa Parks just sat down on a bus and we watched the civil rights movement unfold as a result. We have watched as 200 plus cities have seen radical changes in employment and fair wages in fast food restaurants because a few in one city decided that enough was enough and that they were going to create change by starting a movement to see equality and justice as it relates to fast food. And now 200 cities have banded together to make sure that affordable wages are coming in through fast food restaurants around this country. We have literally watched nations topple through hashtags. We have watched as civil disobedience has taken place in countries where there have been gross atrocities, where nations have been changed because someone put a statement on Twitter with 140 characters describing the atrocities that were unfolding and the world watched and people mobilized and nations were changed. 140 characters, one hashtag. It starts with something small. And so as we think about this word, I want us to reorient how we think about this word because the reality is as we've gone through this series, as you've heard about all the beautiful and blessed things that God tells us about himself in his word, we finish our prayer, we finish our services with this one word, but God doesn't waste words in the scripture. And this one word is incredibly meaningful. Jesus also tells us that faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. We understand that there are little things that can bring about glorious realities. And some of us understand this on a personal level. Some of us come into this meeting and think, in the realm of what's happening in this city, I'm insignificant. I have nothing to offer to this city. I have nothing to offer. My baggage, my history, my story is uninteresting, unimportant. In fact, maybe some of the skeletons in my closet will mean in my mind that no one will want to hear me, that I don't have a story to tell, that I don't have a part to play in this society, in this church. And God wants to remind you today 
through this one simple word that God uses small things to bring about great change. God uses small words to remind us of glorious promises. God uses people that seem insignificant, that seem small, to bring about incredible fruit in his kingdom. And so we're going to look together at this simple, perhaps overlooked word. And and I don't want to oversell what we're going to see in the scriptures as we look together at what this word has to say. But I really hope that when we look at this word and when we say this word from our lips, I hope we think about it differently because it can radically reorient particularly corporate prayer in our life together. Because what we're going to learn about together today is amen when the service, when the song, when the prayer ends. Amen is not the end, but the start. Amen is where words end and action begins. Amen is where we close a prayer and start to act on the glorious promises that God has set out in his word. Amen is the start of commitment and a call to agreement. And we're going to see that together. But before we go there, I want to review where you've been. You've got it in your bulletin. It'll be up on the screen for those who have really good eyesight. I didn't um, think more clearly about how, how large you need to make the print. But I wanted to remind us about all that you've looked at because this is why this word amen has such meaning at the end of this Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe that there's a creator. We believe that there is one who made all things, that there is purpose and meaning in all that happens in this life. My my daughters and I talk regularly. We hear people, and this isn't about being word police. We all say these sort of things. But remembering that we don't believe in luck. Luck is saying that everything happens without purpose. We believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, who made all things good and with purpose and with meaning. We live our lives with the reality that we're made in the image of our God who made all things good. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was not just a good teacher. Jesus was not just a good example, though he was both of those things. But if he was only those things, he was nothing. He was God in the flesh. The invisible realities of God made visible in a man. That's who Jesus is. The invisible realities of God made visible in a man. When we're unsure of what God is like, we can look at Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying. When you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is not just saying, I'm a good teacher, follow my instruction, because if that was enough, we would be undone, because his teachings talk to us about laying down all that we have and following him. If he was just a good teacher, we'd be undone by his teaching. And he's not just a good example. He didn't just show us how to live the good life though he did. In fact, he lived the perfect life on our behalf. He was our savior. 
overcoming sin and death for us so that we might have a restored, renewed relationship with the one who made all things. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. What Jesus reminds us of is that death is not the end for all those who come to believe in him. This is as bad as it gets for the Christian. Because one day Jesus will come back to take us to be with him where we will enjoy unending relationship with him and with each other in a place that we can't even fathom because of its beauty. Where there'll be no death and no suffering and no sin. Our final resting place promised because Jesus overcame death for us to provide the seal of promise through the Holy Spirit to remind us when our hearts groan, when we're left wondering, why is there still this brokenness? Why is there still this suffering? Why am I still struggling with this sin? It's a reminder that we're not meant to live for this world alone. There is a hope beyond this life that Jesus promises us. His suffering reminds us that he understands the plights that we go through. God is not uncaring and unaware and unaffected by the suffering that you experience. When you experience trials and sufferings of many kinds, the scriptures, like in places in Hebrews 12, reminds us that he endured the cross, scorning its shame, that he might, on the other side of the cross, redeem our suffering because he has overcome it for us. Jesus understands our suffering. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good example. He walked and lived and breathed the same air as us and watched the suffering that went on around him. He experienced his own family calling him crazy, being hungry, being in want, being tired to the point of being on a boat in the middle of a lake with water rushing in and being so tired that he was unaffected by the storm that was going on around him. He's known what it means to be tired. He's known what it means to have people that you think on your, on your side abandon you. He's known what it means to have people accuse you of things that you have never done. To look at you a certain way because you're from a certain place. Jesus understands our suffering. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. See, we come together, we recognize the beauty and the reality of this is, and this, again, boggling to the mind to think about this that there are different places around the world where this sort of gathering is happening and all of it is bringing praise and glory to the one God who can hear all the prayers, all the praise in different languages, in different tongues, from different people all around the world. He can hear and receive and understand and glory in all of that. 
It's one church we join with. We can feel that we're alone in this. Like we're the only people that believe, that love, that practice these things. And this creed reminds us that we're not alone. We stand on the history of the disciples who have been faithful to pass along the good word of Jesus' resurrection. The good word of hope beyond death. The good word of sin forgiven through Jesus. We believe in the forgiveness of sin, the communion of the saints. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. But we say amen. But the reality is that we need to understand what this word really means as it rolls off our lips. And, and again, some of you understand this. One of the things, I, another thing I love about being amongst Recovery House worship on, on a Sunday is the, the recall and response. I'm from a very reserved church, and so I can sometimes be out preaching in different churches, and it feels like everything I'm saying is just bouncing off foreheads, you know? You know? Like, I, I, there's just glazed eyes, but, and maybe because that's me, I don't know. Maybe it's what I'm saying. But sometimes I love being among those who, who call out the amen and preach it, brother, because it's a reminder that this is not just a monologue. This is an experience of God addressing us through his word and allowing us to experience the reality and the hope of the promises that we stand on together, together. But amen is a commitment, is a commitment. When we say amen, what we're really saying is we're committing to following all that's come before. It's a commitment to follow all that has come before. This happens again and again in Scripture. Just one example from this, from Moses, and you're going to understand how the tension exists in this reality of amen being a commitment a commitment to follow all that has come before. Moses comes up on the mountain. He has an experience with God. In fact, he has two of these experiences. The first, he has the experience with God where he gets the tablets. He's on the, the mountain with God for 40 days. He receives the tablets. He comes down and he sees the people having abandoned the promises and the realities of God. And he smashes the tablets to the ground and has to go back up to get new tablets. But then he comes back down again. He receives the tablets again, and he's laying these words, the very words of God. I mean, I don't know if you stop and think about it for a moment. When God is meeting with Moses up on the mountain, and he gets the two tablets, I, I mean, just creatively wondering, is it actually God's hand chiseling the words on the tablets? And we know that it's such a beautiful, monumental experience because having been on the mountain, Moses comes down and his face is so radiant that the people are afraid to look at him. They can't handle looking at his face. And that's only because Moses has been in the presence of God. And so Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets, reads the tablets. And then in Exodus 24, 3, it says this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, 
all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is where we get the essence of our word, amen. All that the Lord has said, we will do. This idea of amen is a covenant. It's the closing of a covenant. When words are exchanged, when a promise is declared, amen is the seal of that promise to say, I am committing to these realities. I am going to follow after these promises, these instructions. Amen is a commitment to follow the word of God. It's a commitment to follow all that has come before. When we sing these songs, when we pray these prayers, when we hear the word proclaimed and then we declare amen, what we're saying is all that has come before, all that has been said, I commit to following, to obeying, to submitting to. Because again, the reality is we don't just come to church on Sunday to hear words and then when we sit down afterwards over lunch, just allow them to spill out of our ear. Amen is a declaration that what I have heard, I'm committing to do. I'm committing to do. But again, here's the reality. We hear a lot of stuff, right? It's like when you sign up to get new apps or when you update your phone and you get that update that says this contract you need to agree to. Or when you go to, to sign up for a job or you're looking for job placement, you have to agree to the contract. They, they put all this stuff. Or when you're doing your tax return and there's all this information, you're filling out your W-2, like, what is all this stuff? And I just hope it's okay and I'm signing my name away and I'm going to pass it in and hope no one arrests me. The reality is when we're saying amen, here's what we need to be doing. We need to be listening close. Because what we're saying, when we're saying is amen, and it's that contract that I'm, that's been put before me, these words that have been laid out, if I'm saying amen, I'm saying, you have the right to hold me accountable to these words. To these words. But we have to listen close. It, it, it puts the onus on us when we're singing. I, I tell churches this again and again. Churching, singing is not just an emotional experience, though it is. It's not just a moment to fill in the service because that's what generations of churches have done. It's an opportunity to collectively pray the same words together to God. And then when we say amen, what we're saying is, God, I'm saying now, I'm going to follow these instructions I'm going to live out the reality of these truths. I'm going to trust and hope in these things. I'm committed to practicing what you're saying. I'm committed to believing what I'm singing. I'm committed to trusting what God has promised. But here's the thing. We are a commitment-phobic society. When, when some of us say amen and now it's like commitment, a few of us probably are starting to recoil because we realize like, whoa, hey, okay, that, it's okay to sing stuff. I, I mean, that's a fine thing. You know, it's okay to, to read stuff on a screen. It's okay to come into a church and, and have and warm fuzzies about some nice things that sound good because they're put behind music. It's another thing to say, okay, I'm going to live this way. We are a commitment-phobic society. 
And that's generally because of two things. One is we have seen so many promises broken. So many people have made promises to us and have not come through. I'll get you that job. I'll find you that help. I'll get you that house. Things will work out, I promise. And it, and it falls apart. And it doesn't come through. And we watch it again and again and again. And we live with this commitment phobia because we've watched promises break so many times. But the other reality is we're commitment phobic because we know our own hearts. We know that when we say we promise, we are going to have a hard time keeping that promise sometimes. In fact, if we're honest, sometimes we make a promise we know we're not going to keep. We just say it to make someone feel good in a moment or because we're pressured because it will make us appear better in someone's eyes. And so we make a promise, and we're not going to keep it. But here's what amen is telling us. Amen is telling us that we're not trusting in us. See, what amen is saying, I'm committed to the realities of who God is. You see, when we say amen at the end of a service or amen at the end of a prayer, we're not saying, God, I hope I can keep all these promises. What we're saying is, God, I'm trusting that you, you who are you say you are, and you will do what you say you will do. I'm trusting in you. I'm putting my hope in you. And when we're unsure, when we're unsure of just how good God is at keeping his promises, Look at the cross. When we're unsure of how good a promise keeper is who lives in such a way to show us what living under promise looks like, look at Jesus. Because here's the reality of what Jesus shows us about who God is. We break God's promises. Jesus takes the punishment for it. And yet, Paul tells us that Jesus is the yes and amen to every promise from God. So Jesus keeps every promise set out in the scriptures for us and yet takes the punishment for all the times we don't keep our end. So when we come to church on Sunday, when we're saying amen, we're not committing to saying, God, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to trust in you. Even when, yes, maybe. Maybe. But here's what we're ultimately saying. If we are following what amen is about when the scriptures laid out is, I'm going to trust what God says. I'm going to put my hope in him. My rest and refuge and trust is in the promises and the realities of the glory of God. Amen is a declaration of our submission and our trust and our commitment to resting in, to glorying in the promises of God. You might think your faith is small today. You might be unsure. Your faith might be wavering and, and a 
wonderful pastor in the city, Tim Keller, reminds us again, it's not the measure of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It's not the measure of our faith that saves you, because Jesus tells us faith as small as a mustard seed can move a mountain. What Jesus reminds us is it's the object of your faith. Who do you trust? Amen is a declaration of my trust and my hope and my faith being in God. These things. I will live like these things are true. I will live like these promises will really come to pass because they are coming from a divine, glorious, kind, powerful promise keeper who loves us and promises good for us. But secondly, amen is also an agreement. And I don't just mean an agreement like I'm going to do what I say, like I've already told you. It's an agreement that we come together and submit to these things. One little word and one little thing about this Apostles' Creed might sound strange to us, and there's even an asterisk and a few of them if you look at it online. It says, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, what that's, what that's not saying is that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church, right? What we're saying is that we collectively, as a Christian body around the world, believe that these are the most important realities of who God is and what he's about. These are the things we agree on. We agree that Jesus is Lord. We agree that forgiveness is possible and is full in Jesus. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Godhead who promises to indwell and empower the believer who comes to trust in Jesus. The person of the Holy Spirit working to change and empower and equip the Christian. And so we agree on these things. Why this is important is because we live, again, in a society, in a culture, in a city full of disagreements. Follow your Facebook wall long enough and you will find friends, friends who disagree with you vehemently about a whole host of things. Just honestly, to be honest, as Eric Gardner and Tamir Rice and all sorts of other police brutality situations have come up. I have had friends that I've been, I'm just on it, be honestly, embarrassed to have them as my friends on, on Facebook because of what they've been sharing. We live in this culture where there's all these disagreements that exist. People have strong opinions. I mean, the election is coming up. And there are heated discussions going on about who we should vote for and who is good and who is bad and why. Let me drop it down into another level. There's a football season on. And there's all sorts of strong opinions about who's the best and who's the worst and who's going to end up in the Super Bowl. We have two, I mean, again, I'm Canadian, so I'm going to throw it out there. We have two sort of football teams because neither actually play in the state. So we have two football teams. And people have strong opinions. You have two baseball teams. We have strong opinions about music. We have strong opinions about clothing, what we should wear to church, the songs we should sing, how we should sing them. All these things are good and fun and are part of God's creation, but they cause disagreements. 
And what this creed reminds us of is there's bare essentials that are vital for us to say, when all is said and done, we agree on these things. So we can love each other because of these things. And I was thinking about Scripture in relation to this, and I was just struck again by this one little section of Scripture. And most of you will know the second half of the Scripture, but it uses two different words in this Scripture to help us understand what Jesus is getting at. Matthew 18, 19 and 20. Look at the first part of the text. Again, truly I say to you, if two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask for. It'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, we usually think about the second half. Where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. But what Jesus wants to remind us of, that the power of prayer in corporate moments is that we agree on things. When we want to see God move and do powerful things, whatever they ask for, There is no preface. There is no bracket in that. There is no living Bible moment where it's like, this might mean something different. No, Jesus is putting it plain and simple. If you agree, and what do we agree on? These things. We agree that these things are the realities that we want to collectively agree on and submit to and trust in. That God is creator and good and glorious, that forgiveness is possible and full in Jesus, that we come together in communion under and for the glory of Jesus Christ. These are the things that we agree on. And if we can come together and say, at the end of the day, I'm not about worship styles. I'm not about what we should do, when we should do it, how we should do it, what we should wear, all those things. All those things are fine and good but they cause disagreements. If we can come together in our prayer meetings and say, you know what we're going to agree on? We want God's glory. We want God's good and glorious purposes to be displayed in our midst and submit ourselves and trust ourselves. Jesus says where we agree, where we come and we agree, where a room, imagine, you have prayer meetings Fridays, right? First Friday? Last Thursday? If you come together and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to allow this to drive our agreement. Read through this and say, you know what? Yeah, how we pray, how long we pray. Now we're not going to get upset about this thing. We didn't pray long enough about certain things. We're going to come together and agree that this is what we want to be about. And, And secondly, recognize, then you can start to agree with even a broader group of Christians out in the city. They might have differences of opinions about other things. Seven-day Adventists worship on Saturdays. But they would adhere to these things. Roman Catholics, many would adhere to these things. And we come together and agree what Jesus tells us. They will know that you are my brothers and sisters by your love for one another. And when we come together and agree that these are the realities of God that we want to trust and hope in, God is waiting and longing to answer the prayers of his people instead of being more concerned about the disagreements, what they're not doing, what they don't see, what they don't believe, what camp they're in or not in. 
the beauty of this. Again, St. Augustine historically has said it this way to help us understand. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In essentials. These are the essentials. In non-essentials, liberty. There is room for understanding that we have differences of opinion about praying out loud or praying quietly or praying all together or praying one at a time or what kind of music, how long it should be, how long the sermon should be, what Bible version. I mean, I, I'm just, this is just Christian stuff, right? Then we start talking about politics and music and sports. This can go on and on and on. We can find ways to disagree. Amen is standing together and saying, we collectively believe and trust and agree on these things. And it makes a powerful statement. Because Jesus wants us to see and know that the reality of the church is you're not gathering together on Sunday because you're to get to collectively in some recovery program. You're not gathering together because you live in the same neighborhood. You're not gathering together because you like the same clothing or you like the same sports teams. You're not gathering together for those things. You're gathering together because you commonly have a love for Jesus. And what's beautiful, and I said at the start, what's beautiful is people would come into this room and say, how in the world did this group of people end up in the same room together? And that's a powerful statement where the answer can be, it's not but the glory of Jesus. Right? Where we agree there is power in saying Jesus is what's brought us together. And so thinking about it practically, where am I putting needless barriers in, in fellowship? Have I wrote, written someone off in the church because they have a stance on a secondary issue that I think is a primary issue and I've stopped hanging with them or loving them or being with them on a secondary issue? It's affecting the whole church. Where one suffers, all suffer. Unity matters for all. And so we have to stop. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself. I remember, just an example. I, I got saved through the teaching of John MacArthur, okay? And I, to this day, still love John MacArthur, largely. I'm a, I'm a charismatic, though, so I, I'm, I'm his enemy on a whole bunch of things. But... I was listening to his teaching, and it was like, you're either in MacArthur's camp or you're out of his camp, and he's very clear about this. And I would say, and I would act like this. If you didn't have the same stance on me, you were out of the camp. And I was like, I don't even know if you're really a Christian. You know, like it's, I'm, you know, you're, there's a trial basis out on you right now. And I was sinning. There was no charity. There was no humility. And I was breaking fellowship with Christians who were far more mature than me, but I thought I knew more than them. Maturity, again, going back to the commitment, is applying what we know. Not just signing off on our agreement to something. So where am I causing division? By focusing on secondary issues. This is the beauty of the Apostles' Creed, and I love that you go through it because... I'm sure, I am positive that you have come in this room from different theological backgrounds. Positive. 
And what's important is we agree on these things. If we can start to agree on these things and submit ourselves to these things, then God delights to open the heavens and say, I want to pour out my glory and my power. I want to pour out provision and goodness and kindness on you so you can display my love because you are walking in unity under submission to Jesus together. Together. And so, amen. Remember I said little words, right? Rosa Parks, for whatever reason, she hasn't elaborated a lot on why she did what she did, other than to say initially why she sat down was that she was tired. And I was having a conversation with a friend yesterday. We know that it wasn't just physical tired, being tired. There was emotional and spiritual tiredness. And you know, you know what that's like. But often in these moments when someone is taking a seemingly small step, what they are doing really is undergirded by powerful realities. Powerful realities that drive simple statements. Powerful realities that drive simple words. And we together, again, you come in and you might think, I'm not strong. I don't have enough money. I'm not, I'm not educated enough. I don't have all this, I don't have all that's necessary to make think about these powerful moves of God. And God is saying, it's not about how good or strong or powerful you are. Undergirding all these things throughout history, Moses, Abraham. I mean, Abraham. Abraham takes his son Isaac up onto the mountain. And Hebrews tells us that he was so confident in the promises of God, even though he had never seen someone raised from the dead, he was so confident in the reality and the nature and the power of God, he knew that if he actually put the sword to Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. Even though, as Hebrews tells us, he had never seen that happen. Abraham, through his life, experienced much struggle and wavering. But it wasn't because his personal faith and commitment was strong. It's because he stood on the realities of the promises of the goodness and the power of God. And his amen was, God, I'm going to step out from this place and trust you. I don't know what the future's going to hold. I don't know what this is going to mean. I don't know where you're calling me. I don't know how this is going to play out, but you know what? I'm going to trust you. And so our amens as we gather together, as we hear the songs, as we pray the prayers and receive the words, when we say the amen, we're going to go out and say, God, I don't know what awaits me out there later today. When you're going out onto the subway, when you're facing the struggle, when Monday hits and you're wondering about whether you're going to be able to keep your job, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know this. I trust in this God. I trust in this God. And he promises to keep and to do all that he says. This is the root and the foundation of all of our amens. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are far more committed to us than we are to you.
And Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of what it means to enter into relationship, it starts by saying, I don't have the answers. I can't fix myself. I need to trust in what you did. And Jesus, what you did was you lived a perfect life, and yet you took the punishment for my brokenness. And I trust in that. It's not about trusting in me. And so if there's any here, Jesus, that are unsure or want to talk more, that you would prompt them to talk to someone around them or they came with, or one of the pastors here, Jesus, we love you that you are the fulfillment of all the promises that your Father has set out for us so we can hope in you and look to you and rest in you. Jesus, that our faith would be strengthened because we've seen more of your glory. We have heard more of your goodness. And help us to not only believe it, but to practice it and to share it because you are worthy and you are good. We pray this all in your precious and glorious name, Jesus. Amen.